hope you'll enjoy this episode of Women Worth Knowing. Make sure you rate us on your podcast app, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Hello, hello. Welcome to Women Worth Knowing. My name is Jasmine Allnut, and I am joined by Cheryl Broderson. Yes, and here we are for actually part two of a podcast we began uh, in our last episode uh, in the life of Elizabeth Blackwell. And why was she so well-known, Cheryl? She was the first doctor in Woo! America, or actually— A woman doctor, yes. woman doctor, female doctor, recognized in the world, whether Amazing. England or America. It just hadn't happened before. And our last session, we talked about her sheer perseverance to go to medical school. <laughs> so if you didn't listen to part one, you really need to go back. Yes, Because it, it's so incredible. At this point in her story, she's in France, and she wants to study at La Maternity, but she can't study as a female doctor because they won't recognize her diploma. They won't even let her in. So she has to go as a nursing student. So she's up at 5.30, but she is just so tired because she's she's living with all these young nurses. They're younger than she is. They're distracted. Mm. And she's trying to do the best that she can, but, but she's also teaching. She's taking on lectures also. Yes. Right. No. And, and nursing hadn't become the more honorable profession yet. It was kind of starting to get there. So that was mm -hmm. a challenge. But because of her expert care, one woman gave her a prayer trinket that Elizabeth placed in her Bible and treasured forever as a reminder of her days at La Maternity. But one day, as Elizabeth was overly tired and caring for an infant, she was using a syringe um, to get rid of an infection in the child's eyes. And the infection, the inf it, the syringe actually kind of splashed out of the child's eyes and into her eyes. Oh, whoa. And what happened is it spread throughout her body and resulted in taking the eyesight from her right eye. And oh. after that, her hopes of being a surgeon were dashed to pieces. So she'd gone to maternity just to learn to be a surgeon. And after that, it was over oh, because of going blind in her right eye. In fact, she was blind for a season, but eventually her sight returned to her left eye. From law maternity, she traveled to England before returning to the United States. And what had been, what had, um, she had become known um, by this time as the first female doctor. There, an article had come out about her, and um, so. England recognized her as a heroine, and they invited her into the intellectual circles. And it's there that she met and became friends with Florence Nightingale. Hey. It was during this visit. And during that, they talked about the need to train women in hygiene and skill for nursing. And that was something that Florence Nightingale was just belaboring. Mm. Women need to be trained. This yep. is not something that they can just do. And Florence Nightingale also, like Elizabeth, saw the need for hygiene, yes. for cleaning, for washing. And you know, part of this was uh, through her service in nursing. So she also became close friends with Lady Byron, who would later become a supporter of some of Elizabeth will return to England and Lady Byron will become one of the main fundraisers right. for Elizabeth's work in England. So she returns to the United States in July 1851, and she sets up a medical practice in New York City. However, her landlady refused to let her advertise herself as a physician. So male doctors were allowed to have signs in the windows or in front. She was not allowed to. 
No place that she tried to rent would ever let her do this. However, she heard that the editor of the Tribune newspaper was sympathetic to women's rights. So she went to visit him, and he wrote an article about Miss Blackwell, M.D., returning to the city of New York and how she had studied at law maternity and at St. Bartholomew's Hospital in London and that she had opened an office at number 44 University Place. At this point, she started getting notoriety and she started getting patience, but because before that, nobody was coming to her Mm. office and she couldn't advertise. She still can't have a sign. So people have to just know the address. At one point, she asked a male doctor to guide her on a certain case of pneumonia. And he came and was willing until he realized that she was seeking his professional assistance. And he was so embarrassed and he was worried about his own reputation as a doctor because he had participated with a woman. So she needed his help, consultation that was just something there should be two doctors. So what she did is she appealed to him, will you come then as a friend, just as an advisor then? And he said, yes. And then he kept doing that and said, this is ridiculous. I will come as an assistant. So wise. I right. love her. <laughs> she applied to work at a hospital and a dispensary because, you know, doctors need hospitals that they work at. And she was refused with the words, find your own dispensary. Yep. So Elizabeth determined to do that. She rented a hall, raised funds by giving lectures and inviting lecturers. And she published her talks, The Laws of Life, with special reference to the physical education of girls. And through that support, she opened up a dispensary, which is kind of like a small hospital. It'd be like an ER or like a kind of something like clinic. like an urgent care, like a yeah. little clinic more. Mm-hmm. At this time, her sister Emily began to apply to medical colleges, and so she applied to Geneva. But Geneva said, "Never again." We did that <laughs> once; that was a one-off. But she found another college in Ohio that accepted her because of Elizabeth's story. Mm. Um, When Elizabeth lectured, she often referred to Elizabeth Fry as one of her greatest heroines. Um, And that was one of the stories that she told in order to raise money. So she rented a house on 7th Street near Tompkins Square, and she had to clear out piles of rubbish. This was her first dispensary, and she called it the New York Dispensary for Indigent indigent Women and Children. Mm -hmm. And it was open three days a week. Week. It was in a disreputable part of town, and it was dangerous for Elizabeth even to travel there and back to her lodgings. Wow, that she would choose that area. <laughs> and, and one day, the police officers were also, like, crooked at this time. And this one police officer came, and Elizabeth was good-looking, and he tries to take her hand. and But she's so brilliant. She looks at him, and she says, oh, my work of mercy would be impossible if it were not for the chivalry of men like yourself who respect it. I came to this corner because I knew fully, that I could rely on your protection. And he never bothered her again, and he made sure that all the policemen respected her. Um, However, as great as that is, um, that dispensary, um, it ran out of funds after a while. Elizabeth was 33 years old, and she had had many men try to pursue her, but she had refused all her suitors because she felt that she could not be free to seek her life's purpose if she married. 
However, she longed for a child. So she adopted a little girl of Irish descent named Kitty Berry. And Kitty became very attached to her. And this is great because Kitty Berry will become her lifelong companion. And that's interesting because we talked about that with Hannah Moore, how a lot of these intellectual women, if they wanted to pursue something, they often had to give up marriage in order mm-hmm. to do that. So that's so cool she was able to have a daughter. That's right. Just this. One day, a young German girl came to her door. Her name was Marie um, Zakruska. And she had heard Elizabeth's story, and she wanted to be a doctor. So Elizabeth said, you know, that's a great ambition, but your German accent is so strong. You need to really learn to speak English and learn the English language. So what Elizabeth did is she tutored her not only in English and the English language, but tutored her in medicine until Marie could apply to medical schools. So Marie left for Cleveland and went to the same medical school that um, Emily Blackwell went to. So Elizabeth opened her a second office in 1852, and she had a growing clientele. And Emily returned and joined her sister's practice, and then Marie came too. Mm-hmm. And Elizabeth wanted to open a hospital with her with her sister and with Marie. However, there was much opposition and slander about her plans. So Elizabeth purchased this house and set about using it as a hospital. And it was upon her sister's return. She's like, how did you get? A hospital. And she said, hey, I just bought it. <laughs> and uh, she rented out rooms to people until she could afford to pay for it completely and have it as a hospital. Smart. Then she opened an infirmary for women and children. Um, as I said before, the first at Thompson Square had to be closed because of lack of farms. But this one she opened on Bleecker Street in New York City. And if you've been to New York City, everybody knows where Bleecker Street is. I was like, oh, I know where that is. I'm going to look for the <laughs> plaque. And my daughter Kristen was telling me there's still a plaque there. Oh, that cool. this was the first um, New York infirmary for women and children that was run by women. And it was a dispensary and a hospital. And she wanted the rooms to be bright, airy, and clean because she said this, if people aren't happy, they can't get well. Elizabeth was one of the first physicians to consider the emotional well-being as well as the physical well-being of her patients. Amazing. At this time, um, she needed to raise funds. So she asked Dr. Beecher, Horace Greeley, and Mary Booth all to come and speak for the opening of this hospital and then to do regular lectures. She would have them in to to keep money so the hospital could run because most of her patients were poor. So the first floor had the offices of Elizabeth, Emily, and Maria. The second floor contained spacious wards with eight beds each, and the top floor was divided into tiny cubicles for nurses and interns. So she also started a training center for the nurses, and that was on the third floor. And she intended someday to have a medical t- college to train both female nurses and doctors. Mm-hmm. Now, Elizabeth wanted to hold classes to train nurses to teach families. She didn't just want the nurses to be nurses at the dispensary and the hospital, but she wanted them, she wanted, she was the first to pioneer home health care. She wanted to send these nurses um, to follow up with the patients, but also to teach um, the homes before the patients were sent home how to have hygiene in the home, how to clean, because people didn't know how to clean in those days and how to uh, do bandages. So these nurses were learning so that they could teach others. It's kind of like, you know, 1 Timothy 2.2, you know, entrust others that can teach others. Yes. So at this point, there were some women who came who were suffragettes who said, we want to train for nursing and everything. And she looked at them and she said, I don't think you've got the right attitude because I want you to do it for the people and be 
because you feel the call, not for a cause. Yeah, the women's rights Isn't cause. That yeah, so wise. Very. So there were constant setbacks for the hospital. One doctor who was to consult on a surgery delayed because he wasn't sure he wanted to be known for associating with an all-women's hospital and female mm-hmm. doctors. Finally, he attended an hour late, you know, after struggling with his conscience. Other times, the patients declared that they would have been better off if a male doctor had attended them, like, ah, it was okay, but it would have been better if I had a male doctor. Twice, the hospital was mobbed. Once, a patient with an appendicitis came, and it was too late. In those days, they didn't know what to do with an appendicitis. The people who had an appendicitis attack died. So would they just blame her because it was a woman? Mm -hmm. Yeah. They blamed her because she was a woman, and the patient died, and the relatives stirred up a riot that continued for over an hour. Stones were thrown, insults shouted, but Elizabeth comforted the patients until the commotion abated. Later, an autopsy was performed that absolved the hospital and the women of any blame. Mm -hmm. Another death at the hospital brought another riot. This time, two men who had been treated at the dispensary came to the aid of the hospital, stood in front of the doors, and they stood up to the crowd and said, no, these women saved our lives. And they each told their story. One of them was an Irish man that she had treated for pneumonia because then pneumonia was a death sentence, and she Mm -hmm. treated him, and he lived. Um, Later— An autopsy was performed over that death, and they were absolved of any blame. Man. In the first year of the hospital, they treated 300 patients. The second year, they treated over 3,000. Wow. Marie left to take a position as a lecturer at a female college of medicine in Boston. So because of Elizabeth, a female college of, of medicine happened. At first, all the lectures were men, but then Marie was the first Female lecturer? First female medical lecturer. Wow. And a doctor, Annette Buckle, took her place, as well as another woman, Dr. Mary Breed. At this time, Elizabeth pioneered outpatient services we talked about and the women nurses. Think about this, though. This is 1858. And think about what's brewing right now, the unrest in the United States. Civil wars, yeah, about to come. So she's invited in 1858 at the invitation of Lady Byron to return to London to pioneer a women's hospital. She gave lectures all over England for the next seven months in hope of raising enough money to build a hospital in London for women, just like she did in New York. She was unsuccessful. However, she became the first woman in history to be enrolled on the medical register of Great Britain. So Great Britain recognized her as a doctor, but she could not get enough funds to start a hospital at that time. She returned to the States, and they moved to the hospital to a new and larger location near the East River at 126 Second Avenue. I'm mentioning these addresses because if you go to New York, you can see plaques now in honor of Elizabeth Blackwell. Wow. And I think it's wondrous because she was also a Christian, an outspoken Christian. Absolutely. All of Elizabeth's plans had to be put on hold with the initiation of the Civil War. At that time, New York was a very divided city. However, Elizabeth would allow no prejudice of any kind. She took care of the widows of the Northerners, black women, and injured Confederate soldiers all at the same time. In fact, at one time, um, these one patients did not want to share a room with a black woman. And she said, then you can't be at this hospital. Amazing. Because we don't recognize color in this hospital. We recognize the image bearers of God. Yes, yes. She, during this time in She formed two important wartime organizations. One was the National Sanitary Aid Association, and the other was the Ladies' Sanitary Commission. One was to look after the comforts of the soldiers, and the others to furnish and train nurses for war. One of the trainees became a heroine of the northern side. 
She was trained again with Elizabeth. She waited alone for two days and two nights through bloody battlefield to rescue the living men from among the piles of dead soldiers. She literally fished them out and nursed them back to health. My goodness. After the war, Elizabeth grew restless. She accomplished all her goals in America. She had started a female medical college. She had started the nurses training. She had a hospital. But she felt like the business that she had done in England was unfinished. So she sailed with Kitty back to England. Immediately, Elizabeth was welcomed into the fashionable circles and bombarded with questions concerning vaccines and the work of Louis Pasteur. Elizabeth said she was tired of conducting lectures and going in fashionable circles. She said their lives are not real and neither are their illnesses. (laughs) The England papers at this time tried to discredit her. They didn't like her emphasis on hygiene. And for some reason, um, it was known that the English newspapers were just mean. They did it to like everybody. In fact, there was a, she's warned by a man, Mr. Kingsley, who had lots of experience with the English media. He said, silence and your own established character are your only weapons. Wise. So she just ignored them and kept going forward. Mm. She lectured on the importance of disease prevention by sunshine, good food, and freedom from stress. Things Mm. that we all take for granted now. Um, Anesthetics were on the rise, as were Sir Joseph Lister's sanitation protocols, which greatly reduced patient mortality rates. Once she said, maybe I'm writing for the year 1970. Can you believe that? One of her lectures. Oh, wow. She said this, we are not tinkers who simply patch and mend what is broken. We must be watchmen, guardians of the life and the health of our generation so that stronger and more able generations may come after. Mm. She was so progressive, even in her thoughts. Yeah, visionary. Mm -hmm. In 1871, she raised funds and established the National Health Society. She is the instigator of the NHS. Of the NHS. Whoa. Big fun fact there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And its motto when she started is prevention is better than cure. So maybe she stole that from Benjamin Franklin. An ounce of prevention is better than a pound pound of of cure. Yeah. She was ready to retire when she was asked to help establish the first female-operated dispensary on Seymour Street in London. Enthusiastically, she joined the effort, even though already her health was beginning to fail. She suffered from attacks of um, biliary colic, just like her father, Mm -hmm. insomnia, and days of retching. But she became one of the main lecturers at the new dispensary. So she's, you know, earning money by her lecture. She's not... She practices a little bit of medicine, but mainly she lectures, just keeping the funds Making going. ends meet, yep. The true physician, she said, must possess just those qualities most natural to women, tenderness, sympathy, guardianship. Remember that your patients are human beings, not cases. Mm. I love that she always went back to that, reminding people, this is what we're here for, for human beings. Right. And she said, it requires faith and courage to recognize the real human soul under the terrible mask of squalor and poverty. Hmm. The attitude of the student and the doctor to this sick, poor is a real test of the true physician. Like, you know, why you're in it and how good you are. So Elizabeth, after 50 years as a physician, a groundbreaker and a lecturer, became so sick that Kitty had to handle all her Mm. correspondence. So she still continued to answer every letter she got. And I guess that she got somewhere between 100 and 1,000 letters a month. Oh, my gosh. You know, just from 
ask. Can't even respond to a few emails. Right, symptoms. <laughs> and so Kitty would, you know, read her the letters and then would dictate what Elizabeth wanted to send back to them and then write them back. She settled in Hastings, England. And it was interesting because she actually had more relatives in England than she did in the United States with all her siblings. Mm. So she settled in Hastings and two of her sisters came to live with her. Her two older sisters came to live with her because she could afford to support them. She wrote two more books, Moral Education for the Young, and an autobiography called Pioneer Work for Women. In 1889, a French writer wrote a biography about her called Miss Elizabeth Blackwell and the Women of Medicine. Mm. In her waning years, I said this before, her older sisters came to live with her, and she took care of them, even with her bad health. How old was she at this point? Like, was she... She's like in her 80s. Oh, my She's gosh. She's in her 70s or 80s. <laughs> so she wrote this to each soul. And again, a lot of her quotes are because of all the, the letters, because she was mm. she had voluminous correspondent. She mm. was definitely a letter writer. Prolific, yeah. And she wrote all those books too. She wrote, each soul must answer to its maker. So I work on in joyful faith. And that's why she couldn't even quit. Even after, you know, her health began to fail, yeah. she just couldn't quit. Mm. So even. now she graduated from the Geneva College when she was 27 years old. So mm -hmm. by this time she's 87 because they invited her to come and celebrate the 50th anniversary of her graduation from that mm. institution. But she just did not feel at 87 that she was up to the voyage, <laughs> uh, but she wanted to be there. But she wrote them a letter, and it was kind of a survey over her whole life. And she mm. said, I have faith that having cast my bread upon the water, it has done its work. Boy, I'll say so, so much amazing? fruit. You know, I was, I was just thinking as you're sharing all of this, she reminds me so much of uh, a lot of the women missionaries that we've talked about that pioneered and inspired and and showed other women, like, you can go be a missionary as well. And isn't that cool just to think about the fact that this was her mission field? She was a missionary, too, in a completely different field, such a minister. And, you know, not all women are called to be married. Yeah, And for women too. who don't have that call, you know, and especially in her time, how frustrating it must have been mm. to have this intellect. And this call, which is very nurturing, it's a it's yeah. a mothery, it's a mothering call. Mm -hmm. But she didn't have that desire to be married, and there are a lot of women who don't have that desire, you know, in society because our sex driven society is like, what's wrong with right. you? But nothing's wrong, not at all. It's a pioneering spirit. It's a spirit that says, I want to work side by side with Jesus Christ. Yes, and it's amazing. And the fulfillment of that, of fulfilling your call, That's yeah. right. So she died, and on her gravestone, it read, the first woman of modern times to graduate in Madison, 1849, and the first to be placed on the British Medical Register, 1859. Hmm. And then she said this, it is only when we have learned to recognize that God's law for the human body is as sacred, nay, is one with God's law for the human soul, that we shall begin to understand the religion of the heart. So she was saying it's only when we begin to respect and see men as creation. So she definitely, mm. and remember, evolution is raging. Yep. And this is not a theory, even with all her medical training that she bought into. Mm. She said, unless we see it as the creation of God, we will not honor men. Um, we will not give them the right respect or the body the right respect. We will not care for them unless we 
see them as spiritually created by God. Yes, I see you're that. Yes. No, no, no. I was just thinking about that because if you look at just the history of science and medicine, really the greatest pioneers like her were the ones who saw things that way, who saw the saw the creation of God, the nobility of what God has made. They were the ones that pioneered all these fields, not people that were materialists or evolutionists. You know, you even go back to like Isaac Newton and Galileo, Copernicus, these guys, you know, and, and, and her too. Again, in science and medicine, mm-hmm. they recognized that it was from God. That's what gave them their inspiration. In fact, she said the more she studied the human body, the more she was in awe of the God that created it. Mm, mm-hmm. And so, and she did this again, like we said before, she did it because of a call. Yes. And, you know, God had given her the intellect. And you see how everything in her life went together for this call in that she was, you know, um, raised in an egalitarian household. Imagine if her father had not been egalitarian. Right. Not encouraged her. Because so many fathers then were against the education of their daughters. It was like the sons should be re- educated, but not the women. And, But her father believed in the education, and so he raised two doctors, not just one, but so Emily cool. became a doctor. And the sons were all incredible businessmen, kind of like their father. They took on the business side of things and supported her. Two of her brothers married suffragettes. Oh, how Which funny. Is I love really it. interesting. I mean, these are there's so much more about Elizabeth Blackwell, but I condensed it as much as possible to get it into two parts. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I could have easily made this a four-parter. It's it was very dangerous. I'm amazed that some of our earlier podcasts we got into one. I was like, wow, how did we do that? It's getting easier to do like two parters. It's like more <laughs> It is. In fact, when we come to Ida Scudder, that's definitely a two-parter. But right. it's interesting because so many of the other doctors that I've been studying have were influenced by Elizabeth Blackwell. Mm-hmm. And in the biography of Ida Scudder, Elizabeth Blackwell was one of her heroines. And um Ida Scudder was born in 1870 and it and a, it was Elizabeth Blackwell that opened up the way for someone yes. like Ida Scudder to study medicine. Yeah, like that medical college in Boston. I mean, that right. never would have happened. Yeah. Never would have happened. Um, at this point, though, too, what's interesting is still at this point, they opened up medical colleges for women, but they did not have co-ed colleges, co-ed medical colleges for mm. men and women. I think there, the one in Ohio was like the first, and that's the one that allowed Marie and Emily, Emily to study. Right. But as far as that, after that, they, they're they like, wait, let's stop this, and we'll have female <laughs> medical colleges and male medical colleges. Mm. And there was still a lot of prejudice that she had to work through, even from women that didn't want to see her pioneer and succeed, which that was really... I, I've seen that before, where a lot of women get jealous of other women, and they don't want women to succeed. Right. And it just—I was thinking again. I know this is crazy, but I was thinking about the blessing of Abraham, where God says to Abraham, "I will bless those that bless you, and I will curse those that curse you." And I was thinking how important that we as Christian women bless, mm. bless others in their intellectual pursuits, that we bless them in their call, the call of God on their life, and we don't try to strap them down or say, you know, no, you shouldn't do that. You're a you're a woman or you don't do this, but instead really pray for them and encourage encourage and seek to support them. And I think that's one of the things as we've been doing these women worth knowing. I'm, I'm so inspired because not all, we can't, not all of us can aspire to be some of these women, but we can't we can inspire others and we can encourage others. Yeah, and a lot of these, uh, really, their characteristics and qualities are things anyone can do. Uh, Persevere. We can all persevere, really, if we know that we're called by God. You just 
you know, stick to what he's given you to do. Even like you said, it might not be this amazing grand thing, but if you're walking faithfully in what he's called you to, that's it. That's And Elizabeth, even when she lost her eyesight and she realized she'd never realized her dream of being a surgeon, she still encouraged her sister, Emily, and Emily did become a surgeon. Mm, that's and so neat. she did all the surgeries at the hospital, and Elizabeth was so proud of her little sister, Emily. And I and I love that about Elizabeth, that it didn't have to be her. Yes. And, and that she kept persevering. I mean, imagine having all that education that she had mm. and going to law maternity, humbling herself just to because she wanted to know. Yeah, be a nurse. Yeah. And then having that syringe go into her or her eye and blind her and give her this infection. And so that she had to like give up part of her dreams. And yet she still persevered with the school for nurses, the uh, medical college for women, with the Mm. hospitals for women and Mm -hmm. uh, for the indigenous, the poor, and especially, again, especially for um, the the people who were not white. Yeah, that too. All her hospitals allowed people who were not white Mm. to come. And that was something that didn't happen at every hospital. They were very prejudice at the nicer hospitals. So she had the nicest hospitals, the cleanest hospitals, and they were open to any person that God created. Any person that God They were the highest quality as well. (laughs) Here's the qualification. Were you created by God? Then come on in. Yep. (laughs) God wants you and we'll we'll work to see your health. So that's why Elizabeth Blackwell is definitely a woman worth knowing. Oh my goodness, yes. Thanks for joining us. And until next time, we're again, we're on a medical... (laughs) journey Uh, journey, um, (laughs) to see how God has used women in the medical field. And Mm -hmm. these are women worth knowing. Yes. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Jasmine on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at wwk at cccm.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends. Thank you again for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett.